You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, now recorded on the lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Nedelitsky, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Summer Howarth. Summer works across Australia with school leaders, teachers, policymakers, and students. She's the founder of Eventful Learning Co., leading projects, often at national scale, and supporting organisations and governments with strategy, content, and learning experiences. Summer worked as a teacher and leader in schools in New South Wales and the USA, has lectured at Sydney University, and served as innovation consultant at the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership, commonly known as AITSL. Welcome, Summer. Thanks, Deb. It's so good to be here. It's great to be here with you. Uh, Let's start the conversation. And I wanted to start with the concept of learning design, because you Mm. call yourself a learning designer. And I suppose what I'm interested in is why that term design? Mm. And what does it mean to be a learning designer? And what what makes good learning? How does one design good learning for others? Mm. Very good question. I think I'll, I'll start from the top. You know, why do I call myself a learning designer? Because once you step out of the classroom or policy or any of the spaces, it's really hard to give yourself a job title and I refuse consultant or thought leader or any of those things to be my job title. But design has always been something that I'm really connected to and learn more about and practice the art of. And and design is, is an intentional pathway from one point to another. So it's quite creative. It is strategic. It is deliberate, it is disciplined, it is intentional. And I think in that sense, when we pair learning with that, there are very deliberate things that we can do to engineer a learning experience, uh, a piece of learning content, a strategy towards that knowledge transfer and understanding. So I think the two can go hand in hand. But largely, I do think that there is that sense of a learning experience designer. Um, I love to step foot in how is this feeling for someone or how is this going to kind of be part of their journey and I like to backward map it from there so yeah it's a big interesting question design and learning and you know identity you started out big (laughs) well I see snippets of the kinds of learning experiences that you design and therefore I suppose deliver and take people through Mm -hmm. and I find it really interesting that you just said that you think about how people are going to feel about it afterwards Mm. and then backward map so rather than thinking almost of the knowledge or skills takeaways it's actually is this going to be energizing is this going to be something that is that sticks in an emotional way Mm. so is that is that something that sits at the core of when you're designing a learning experience yeah it really does that sense of what is the kind of pervasive nature of that exchange of time with someone which I know sounds very, very esoteric but it is that that sense of okay if this has set me off into a feeling of of possibility or a feeling of being heard or seen, which is some of the experiences that I do have to sort of design and engineer? Or is this a feeling that that I feel oh, exhausted like a brain boot camp because I have just co-created something? I think then to sort of almost map that back into, okay, well, then there's certain skills that we need to activate, there's certain dispositions. So it's everything for me, Deb, from the music that's played when people enter the room the font or the colour story that's used, 
the the way in which uh, things are sewn together, either in quick succession um, or quite slow, there's always a deliberate nature around, okay, what is that sort of uh, mindset that I'd like to be able to, it does sound out a little bit like engineer, like it's not that I want to kind of brainwash here, but I certainly think that there's a, a lot of different elements there that when folks would walk out of the room, that measure of success is, you know, are they feeling like we want them to feel in terms of that outcome that they wanted to achieve as well. So it is taking it on a personal journey. Can't always succeed in that, but certainly being true to the process of connecting with the user and designing for the user in mind is front and centre of what I do. And those words engineer and design talk to that intentionality of the deliberate putting together of the experience in a particular way. Uh, I have heard you also sometimes use actual bubbles in your Oh, yeah. In your learning experiences. Uh, But I guess as you're talking, I'm thinking about (laughs) some of the work I've done. You know, my PhD was actually in professional learning that sticks really was what that was about. Uh, What is it that actually transforms or changes our what we do and what we believe and that professional learning actually needs to change either how we think what we believe or what we do, often you have to change your beliefs, I think, before your practices. Mm. So you're kind of creating learning experiences for a wide range of stakeholders in education that Mm. are ones that you hope that as they step away from those, it's not just a feeling, but it's some actions that go beyond that as well, that there's something maybe that's shifted for them in that time. Oh, big time. To me, as much as we've, we've just spoken about the sort of how I want people to leave that space, um, emotionally, it cognitively is so important. I think we've both been to enough PL. In fact, you've been to more than most because you actually have a PhD in this. To know that sometimes it is truly a waste of time. That comes from a first do no harm principle. <laughs> like if if what I'm doing is not going to have that shift in either your your cognitive possibility on what's next give you a tool set or a skill set or a knowledge set that is highly applicable. I'm I'm steering away from the word transformative. I don't think that I would ever put myself in a transformative bucket. However, I'll leave that to the punter to decide. Um, but if it's not doing that, then there's plenty of other things that teachers, school leaders, students, anyone that I work with can be doing. So it has to be definitely more than a feeling and certainly something that is very tangible to take away. And I guess the other thing I know that you do is more than the sort of one-off, you know, sort of the summer show for two hours and then drop Ah. the mic and off you go. Like a lot of your work is actually ongoing relationships with people or organisations or projects. Some of the ones I'm really interested in making sure we have a chance to talk about today are the ones that are around student voice. You know, student Mm -hmm. agency is a pretty hot-button topic at the moment. But actually I think the work that you do is really where you've seen the rubber really hit the road on that in a real tangible, powerful, uh, maybe transformational uh, (laughs) way. And I'm thinking about the work that you've done for the Northern Territory Learning Commission and the New South Wales Minister Student Council. I wonder if you can talk about some of that work, partly from a student voice point of view, but I suppose also from that project management of taking something and having an ongoing relationship where the snowball just keeps rolling and and the work just keeps building too. Oh, look, you, you're spot on. I think um, my least favourite things to support people in doing, even though I'm always, oh, if I can be helpful, I can be helpful, is certainly those one-offs. It's it's important to be able to build scaffolds and then take them down again. Um, so definitely not building a dependency model, but a, an ongoing relationship is um, super important. So some of my favourite 
times of those relationships is when I've been able to design myself out of the picture, um, whether it be someone saying, you know, we've got you in here because we, we need the confidence to be able to design and, and build and run our own things, then being side of stage per se um, with them and then just being one to push it out and to get people on board. For example, some of the work with, you know, zoos or, um, as you're saying, the doves. That's all about setting up a structure that has that longevity and that evergreen notion that I will still be looking at it in 50 years' time and see the design tenants in there because they've been co-created with with people who care a lot, um, but certainly others have been taking on that baton. So only well, last week, week before, I think it was, it was the first gathering of 2023 for the New South Wales uh, Doves, the student voice group. And we made a really deliberate decision that I would be online while they were in the room working with the students who were empowered by the others in the group to facilitate it, almost sort of teach them the the process of facilitation. I did a consultation, what do they want to achieve, how we can design that session with a long game to what will it look like in 12 months time and what did it look like 12 months prior keeping the legacy alive with that future lens. Um, And those things, you know, work well and sometimes don't, but the design of it is there as well to say, look, that wasn't a one-off and time lost. This is all about a process. We're now eight-ish years into the Northern Territory Learning Commission. The design of that has the absolute scrappy tenants of when that was written on a whiteboard all those years ago to now representing well over half of all learners in the Northern Territory because it is definitely built on some sustainable rhythms of work, some very, very clear support mechanisms, very, very targeted outcomes, and again, a very solid process of design and inquiry at its core. So there's lots of different pieces like that, but I always personally come to it with my job here is to make myself redundant in the delivery and infused in the process. Well, it's resonant from a previous podcast episode, actually. Dylan William was on here and he said the teacher's purpose is to make themselves redundant. That actually, as you say, you build those scaffolds so that people can dismantle them and they no longer need them and they no longer need you is is almost the ultimate success um, as a teacher or perhaps a learning designer. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, I'd love for our listeners to hear a bit more about that Northern Territory Learning Commission and the Youth Voice Peak Group. And I'm I'm thinking you've got that from a – you know, kind of a national department of education, government kind of a scenario. But I wonder if you can explain it and then maybe we can draw it back to, okay, I'm in a school. What does it mean to really bring student voice to the table? What are our young people capable of? What sorts of mechanisms might we use to really include them in the leadership of the school or the the feedback around what we're doing and what we, we can do better? Yeah, of course. Look, the work of the Northern Territory in working alongside their young people is um, is phenomenal and that's come out of so many clever people's um, hearts and brains and agreements I think that they've had with each other as well so there's so many people you know John Cleary um, really leads the charge up there Caitlin Donnelly she's in a system role that is supporting student voice I, I hadn't heard of that before anywhere in department she coordinates student voice now it's definitely been a partnership model which is fantastic so today I'll speak on on behalf of all of the partners that have been in the design of that what what it really I think the tenet of the success of it Deb 
is this shared agreement between the work of young people um, and the work of then, you know, their teachers or the system or whether it be school and system, there's mutual agreements. That's actually such an undercurrent of why it works. Now, it's its basis, whether it be the Peak Youth Voice Group, which is a voice directly into Minister and Chief Executive, that's there pinned by a mutual agreement to keep the engagement strategy relevant and alive and ticking. That's between students, that's between um, system. Same with the Learning Commission, there's an agreement that we are going to treat our data with respect. We're going to have open and transparent data conversations and it's to improve learning. That's an agreement on both sides. System agrees to do that. Students agree to do that as well. Um, it, it's it, They're just fantastic, I think, notions of work because they are incredibly scalable and doable and accessible. And something at that, that sort of, I guess, system or government level across a couple of states and territories that I am developing up. How do we take what that Gonski recommendation was around students as partners in their learning? Couple that with um, Article 12 of of the Human Rights Conventions on, you know, the rights of the child, that, that children have the right to be seen, heard and taken seriously. All of these things come together in terms of, right, well, how do we do that? So we can either inform young people, we can consult with young people, or we can co-design with young people. And then flip that, Deb, young people can inform, uh, you know, decision makers or whatever we want to ask oldies, uh, <laughs> can consult with us or can co-design with us. And what comes in that middle part is like, what are those shared pieces of work or desired features? South Australia is doing a beautiful job at this currently with looking at their purpose statement. They've done this, inform, consult, co-create. Territory is doing it. And when we get into our schools, oh, my goodness, what an opportunity because we're there every day working in partnership with each other. So that's that's a really basic framework um, and then load that with sort of 8, 10, 15 ways of saying what we will do, what we won't do, here are the skills we have in order to do it then you've got a really nice mechanism ticking away. So as long as you can have a, a mechanism that's constantly able to self-sustain itself, you know, other people can jump in and out of it. Different work pieces can come in and out of it. Um, but that's shaping up to be really nice. It's still being tested, but it's working, she says, years later after it's been tested by thousands of kids. So I think there's a lot of things that have come up for me there. I mean, you've talked about, you know, <laughs> needs openness, transparency, mutual agreements. Yeah. But I think there's something there about the mechanisms that's interesting because there's sort of there's two things. There's one thing which is almost a an adjustment in assumptions or beliefs about the place of young people versus the place of adults in the system or in a school. Mm-hmm. So there's almost a, you know, what do we think people's roles are? But then there's also uh, when you say like a lot of these projects you've been involved in are ongoing over a number of years. How do you build in those mechanisms so that let's say the person who brought them in, leaves the place, and mm-hmm. it doesn't just fall down behind them? You know, what are the things that you need to put in place so that they are sustainable, do you think? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, we've certainly had, if we look at the the Learning Commission in the Territory, some schools have jumped in and jumped out and jumped back in again for exactly that reason. And I think we've got tighter at the mechanisms because of that. 
and to to make sure that whoever wants to be in can be in. So one of those, um, well, again, yeah, protocols, tools, mechanisms, um, you know, pieces of, of design of essentially the architecture of the thing um, have multiple levels on which people can can step in and do their work on. So is it something that needs to be sort of, you know, high high touch resource wise, almost guided through step by step? Is it something where people can get the the main tenants of it and maybe dip in and out when they need it on demand? Or is, is it self-sustaining and then part of the DNA of a school? So if, if I look at that level that you were kind of asking at, that self-sustaining, um, there it, it's usually great that if they've made a deliberate resource choice around it, so there is somebody who kind of is empowered within their everyday job title as an adult to do that. Um, if there are structures in place that recognise students have a particular role in the school in it, and usually there's a particular space, now, the other key component is real work that they share. So in this particular instance, students are utilising all of the data sets that all of the teachers and leaders have access to. There's a trusted data protocol and, um, you know, a pledge to be kind to each other, like tough on, on data but soft on humans. Um, but they are making recommendations into school improvement plans or it might be school strategic agendas. There's real work that everyone has something at stake there. It's not pretend work. It's not mm. uh, stuff that can be solved really easily like we want more seats or we want more microwaves. Um, we actually take that off the table. Like that's just nice to have. If you're going to get in this work, be brave in this work. And there's back to that assumption that young people and our students have valuable and equal things to contribute to the real serious work of the school and of or of the system and of the data and of ways that we might improve there you have to believe that with your whole heart and soul um students know when you don't (laughs) they can smell it they can smell the fear um they can smell pretend consultation they yeah and you you get one shot deb i think if you say hey we're going to consult with you on this or we're going to co-design this with you and actually you're just informing them of something you're going to do anyway the next time you truly want to consult they tend to hold back so we if if you get it wrong and I know that's high stakes stuff um but I have worked with some groups where they've said we want to consult with young people on this thing that we're going to do and if it's the case that you're just informing them and you want them to affirm what you're doing and maybe make little tweaks and turns just say that they're happy to come in at whatever level, but just be super honest. And mm. and to go back to what you were saying, the high expectations. I've now done this work with tens of thousands, if not reaching hundreds of thousands of young people across Australia, and I'm yet to encounter a young person that takes it as an opportunity to go hard at a, a teacher's practice or a principal's decisions and practice. They're invested in having a great day at school just as much as the rest of us. Um, so they go hard at, you know, what the possibility and the potential. They investigate the data, but they're so ready to partner in whatever improvement that is, as long as that's your intention as well. So there's that honesty around what sort of process this is and what sort of power or not the student body, for instance, might have in it. Mm-hmm. And that 
constant iteration is what I'm hearing, that constant refinement, looking back, making it better. And also I think it's important that point you make, especially in a school environment but probably in any other, that there needs to be some human resource behind this. And often if you add something as like the last point on a deputy's job description, it's not going to get the love and attention that it needs for it to be really successful, that it needs to almost be someone's baby sometimes, that someone who's going to fight for it, advocate for it, make sure it's carved out. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, I don't want certainly there to be this sense of, well, we don't have the resource, so therefore we can't do it. it. It might be a, not a last dot point, but if it's certainly a priority in some way, prioritize it really visibly, either that be in a human resource or in a space in a school or in um, a, a particular priority of work that's prioritized um, and there's a big enough container that something needs to fill it, right? Like not just a lunchtime meeting every three weeks, that's not a big enough container. Um, then there's going to be some some real action and motivation around it. The other thing that I find uh as as this maybe the scary part maybe even scarier than putting a resource towards it is what data are you going to reveal and make open and available for a bit of a data dive and some questioning that's pretty terrifying but again student young people students um they they very uh protective i want to say of the data they understand the weight of what that means and what that is um, and always treat it with the respect that it deserves so it's it's a beautiful process if we get out of the way kind of hold on tight and that's why we need really good processes and protocols and mechanisms that's where you need to be tight loose with the rest tight with the processes Mm. and and the protocols and I'm thinking now about young people but also about teachers and about policymakers and about stakeholders across sort of education. Mm. One of the things we spoke recently at the ASIL South Australia Hot Topic Night, you and I, in conversation, that was super fun. That was a good time. And one of the things, <laughs> it was fun. One of the things I really, that I think really resonated with the audience was your line around build long tables, not high fences, I think was the line. Yeah, yeah, build, build long tables. And that's sort of running on from what you're just talking about here, it's actually about more including and more collaboration and more working together rather than dividing or saying, well, that's not for you. Um, So I think that collaborative piece is really important. And we talked quite optimistically, I think, about maybe some of the things we learned in the pandemic and before and beyond around the importance of collaboration across countries and systems and schools and and stakeholder groups that can therefore help us to make things better for everyone. I just worked with a group uh, today that it, they were small groups from all different schools, some of them, for want of a better term, competitive schools with each other. Um, you know, that environment of enrolments, well, that's for another day, but <laughs> I guess schools who traditionally possibly wouldn't work together. Um, the power of them saying, here's a, here's a big chunky question that actually if we get it right might have impact on not only our students but students kind of everywhere and across the system and then had this mentality of like okay let's let's drop the fences let's build this long table and they they actually split up in groups and solved each other's or not solved but helped solve each other's Mm. challenges under this kind of trust and um generosity of spirit of we're getting right back to why we got into this in the in the first place and the kinds of futures that we want to see and the stuff that we hope we're seeing across schools in well after we um, sort of retire. 
that's where I get that that sense of once we drop the fences and build a long table, anything's really possible. And those words there I think are really important, trust, generosity, and you talked a bit also about that moral purpose of why we get out of bed in the morning to do this work and we do it for yep. a similar reason, uh, maybe for different, slightly different students in slightly different areas. Right. I mean, one of the other things that you say about yourself on your website, Summer, because I've been looking oh, is... No. Oh, no. <laughs> but I think it's also a uh, <laughs> thing, yeah, you go have another look afterwards, Uh-oh. is something that I think plays out in what the way that you talk, which is that you're a champion of teachers. And I wonder, you yeah. know, this, there's this sense of collaboration, but trust, generosity of spirit, moral purpose, but maybe, you know, teachers don't always get the best deal. Do you want to talk to me about your thoughts around the teaching profession and and maybe what we need to be injecting to support teachers? Give them all of the things. Give give teachers all of the snacks, all of the money, all of the things. But apart from <laughs> apart from that, oh look, I just think teachers are the, are the best people in the world. They they really are. They do so many different things in the day from acute honed skilled professional who engineers these experiences and outcomes for lots of young people who were showing up in cognitively different spaces emotionally different spaces they then provide them with basic human needs and then somehow are strategic around all of the things and and I guess that's for me when I see teachers in crisis personally professionally when I read rhetoric around what teachers should be doing, the media loves shooting all over teachers and schools. And just the, I think some of the general conversations around, you know, the, the low professional status of teachers, it grinds my gears because it's such a, a skillful, soulful, nuanced calling and profession that is deeply and profoundly invested in doing great work no matter what, I can't see the disconnect as to why people would want to go at uh, teachers. So I think over and above all of the snacks, puppies, naps and dollars and all of the things that they, you know, deserve in that in that tangible sense, and I only say that to validate, you can never pay them enough, you can never praise them enough, but try to do both in as much as you possibly can whoever makes decisions on those sorts of things. And and it's up to all of us every day to work in partnership with teachers, whether we be parents or folks that come into schools, you know, assume their cleverness and Mm. praise their hearts and smarts. (laughs) Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) It's that trusting teachers to do their work and respecting them as experts who are skillful but also caring and manage to navigate that knowledge, skills, but also empathy and care, you know, high expectations, high challenge, subject knowledge, knowledge about learning, knowing knowing students, knowing their needs, knowing how they learn uh, and all the other pieces that go in with that and everyone that has something to do with them wrapping around teachers to support them in the work that they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let them get on with what they know they're good at and they are good at. Um, I think there's a lot of functions of teachers we can take um, away from them. Again, trust, trust them, trust them, trust them massively excellent now we when we did speak, <laughs> I know I'm like <laughs> I just love them you've now got you've got me on student agency you've got me on teachers you've yeah, got all me your on favorite design. things oh Jeb 
you're cutting to the heart of it. Well, the, <laughs> the other thing, the thing that we really talked about at our event recently was sort of future of education. And we ran through, you know, where, what we've learned recently, what great things are happening, which I think you've sort of been touching on here and what next, what might be some kind of optimistic possibilities and productive ideas for the future. Do you want to touch on a little bit of your thinking around what you do think might be like now and next in education? What are those spaces for growth and for opportunity for us to be really seriously thinking about? Mm. And, you know, I think that different things come up based on what you run into at all different times of the day, isn't it? I, I really, truly think that our uh, big frontier is is getting students to partner in with our work. And if we can do that, my my gut feel from anecdata, <laughs> talking to a PhD here, talking about data and research, sure. But in my observations as someone who sees a lot of, um, of work in different places, when we partner with students on some of the big pieces around, you know, improvement in, in learning and improvement in outcomes, improvement in belonging, culture and climate, all of the things that we deeply value, there is a, a, a cognitive reduction in our workload. It might not be an actual and operational, but teachers have reported back saying when I've done this work alongside students I'm not second guessing all the time or I'm not preempting a you know difficult conversation or or anything like that. I feel like I'm celebrated and supported and trusted because students are there on my side so I really do think that that's a, a horizon and a future I don't think school is going anywhere and I love that I really love that and I think you and I had sort of chat around that this rhetoric that was flying around maybe a little bit pre-COVID of schools are going to be redundant and the role of the teacher is going to be by robots and lardy lardo. You know, maybe it was hard to disagree with that pre-COVID. I challenge anybody who doesn't see that school is an excellent place for people to spend their day, always getting better. Yes, always challenges, highly emotive. I'm not dismissing the business of schools. Um, but I spend a lot of time outside of school um, and I really like schools. <laughs> I really like schools. Places. I've spent my whole career in them. Yeah. <laughs> I reckon they're, they're, they're ripper. And I, and I intend to continue. Please, please do. I recommend. But we did talk about that and I think we both talked about the fact that during mm. the pandemic and, I mean, you were in Victoria during lockdowns. I wasn't. I was in Western Australia. It was not as, <laughs> as traumatic for us, I think, as it was for you. But Certainly the role of the teacher and the role of the school as community, safe place, socialisation space, yes, about learning yeah. and teaching and pathways to the future and thinking skills and all those kind of things, but actually about just a piece of our society that is so um, necessary for our young people, I think that really came through. That. And you and I are both optimistic about the future. I think I talked about the OCD's report on four scenarios of schooling, one of which is there will be no schools, uh, one of which is school will be externalised. But I think we like that scenario, which is around the school yeah. as becoming really exciting learning hub that offers different opportunities, is maybe a bit more mm. innovative, maybe partners with industry and business, universities, tertiary sector, all sorts of ways that we can think about developing schooling into something exciting and meaningful and relevant and authentic but certainly not that schools are redundant and teachers are redundant and that they'll disappear, I think. No. We're here to stay. We're here to stay and students say that, you know, I, and I, I know I interested with children, young people, kids, 
they say that I really love learning from my teacher. I want my teacher to be well. I, you know, I fear that my teacher won't be around anymore, but, you know, they'll quit or whatever. And then this sense of belonging. Schools help people to belong. When we get it right, and I really want to acknowledge that I understand that that's not a current reality for everyone, but I know schools have their eye on that as well and systemically we do too. I think that was a realisation for schools as well, that often in schools we think about, you know, the learning, the teaching, the pastoral care, the student experience. And, of course, we think about community, but we don't realise that when we can't gather, when we can't come together as community, what we miss. Mm -hmm. And I think we really realised what we missed. And I think that hopefully there's still some of that gratitude at what schools offer in that community space Mm -hmm. uh, as well as the teaching space that is a hangover from experiences in the pandemic. (laughs) I I do too. And experiences now when we can all get back together. it's a good time. So, Summer, we're coming to the end of our time together and so I'm going to move us to the final five questions for our quick fire or sometimes not quick fire, depends on how (laughs) it goes, in lightning round. The first of which is what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you? I think things that people see of me will make sense after I tell them this, Dev. I was once an elite figure skater. I grew up wearing sequins every day. I never stopped that really for those who know me. (laughs) But it was a choice when I got uh, into those sort of latter stages of high school. Do I literally run away and join the Circus of Disney on Ice? There were the auditions coming into town to join Disney on Ice and turn into a professional figure skater. Or was it, you know, stick out, head down into study because a lot of my school was interrupted as a result of my training five hours a day on and off ice. So, yeah, that was was nose down and study hard and uh, wanted to be a teacher. So there you go. Education drew me out of Disney on Ice. Would have been a very different life for sure. Well, last time I saw you, you were wearing a sequin blazer. (laughs) I'm wearing sequin pants right now. So Disney on Ice figure skater forever. Forever. We can't see the sequin pants. It's such a shame. No good for (laughs) podcasting. There's all kinds of pennies dropping for me now, Summer, and I'm sure for some of our (laughs) listeners as well. What about something that is currently on your desk? Well, as, as, as we both know, and you've seen me working from your office, sitting on a couch with a laptop so I don't have a desk so I'm going to talk about uh, what's on my desktop and it is working on uh, lots of different projects we'll get to that in a second but actually what's physically on my desktop is an animated sketch of one of my sausage dogs and I've been playing with them as little icons for some of the learning design on when you see this sausage dog uh, and he's the pink dog that's going to stretch your thinking. So there's a couple of clues there for learners around stretching your thinking. And the other colour, which is an orange sausage dog, uh, is about providing shortcuts or the lowdown on how we can really get around our thinking or that task. So that's what's on my desktop at the moment, are two uh, cartoon stylized sausage dogs. Figure skater, educator who uses sausage dog icons and metaphors for learning. It's all coming together now, isn't it? (laughs) it's all coming together Uh, and we can see why you have so much fun in the work that you do Uh, you're talking to someone who used Alice in Wonderland as part of her PhD so you know I understand a good metaphor there is so many reasons why we're having this conversation and we'll have a thousand more (laughs) so who is someone that inspires you in the work that you do 
Oh, I really thought about this one because I can't pinpoint one. This is actually the hardest question that you could ask because I guess it's a persona maybe of people and and some of these young people that I, you know, talk to and, and they say things like, I'm just here to stand up for my school and my teachers and I'm here to stand up for, you know, my, my learning and like that really drives me in the work. But a, a, a particular person, it's, I want to say John Cleary up in the Northern Territory because I just reckon he's just a ripper. He's teacher, principal, system leader, school leader, and just forever brings this effervescence to things that can be incredibly operational and dry. And I think whenever I'm having a bit of a like, why are the people listening sort of day or like, why are the humans like this day? John will always be there to kind of catch that, but also make sense of the world in this really way of I always walk away thinking like everything is going to be fab. So if I had to name a person, it's John Cleary. Fantastic. (laughs) And great to have those people who are able to buoy you in the work that's, you know, it's good, but it's hard sometimes. Yeah. You do come up against barriers. It's it's hard and, and uh, often it, it's surprising some of the things people will throw rocks at, Deb, and, uh, or, or, you know, claim as their own and you think, come on, this is the work of, of kids. Uh, look, look at what they're doing. Mm. And, and, you know, sometimes you've just got to make sense of that in, in your mind or in dark corners and you need allies to go again. Otherwise, you just you'd just walk away from it. You would. So I'm going to, I'm going to pause for a minute in the quick fire round and just ask about, cause you are so optimistic and you are mm. so energetic and you are so positive in the way that you plow forward <laughs> with possibilities. <laughs> Fall forward. often. <laughs> what is it that you do find? I mean, you said, you know, sometimes people can be surprising or disappointing maybe, but what is it that you find are those challenges that you need to go, Oh, hold on a minute. We need to work through this. What what stops you in your tracks sometimes or, or makes you feel challenged? People that want to have a crack on Twitter at just but you see me very swiftly tell them to, to get in the bin. That that used to bother me. You know what? It, it's low expectations of what young people and, and people who work in schools are capable of doing, but particularly when we're talking the student voice stuff mm-hmm. and there is a deep and wide reality of low expectations and it, it bothers me greatly. And a lot of those low expectations of kids who probably need the most support and resource and often their story just feels like it's ignored or that's that's just the way it is. Those are things that keep me up at night when I, you know, there might be a kid who says something like, why are you so nice to us? I find that really tough. So see, seeing inequities, seeing young people experiencing low expectations and trauma and things that, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of folks in there who can, um, you know, support and professionally support that. And I, I certainly don't have a, a wide skill set on that. But when we have generalised low expectations, when we say, yeah, mm. let's let's give kids a voice, really though, I find that, re- that dissonance really hard to reconcile. But that's also offset by the fact that you see young people from all over the country in all different contexts doing amazing things. Correct. It is. It is offset by that, um, and 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 often that can even be worse, Deb, because I see it, and it's like I don't get why why you can't. Here's a proof point. Here's a case study. Mm. 
what more do you need? So yeah, that that's probably something where I could get a little bit better at the cons and the self-management, but it gets me down. Well, let's change gears back to the positive, <laughs> back to the sparkles let's and the sequins. And that is the light in the dark of Summer Howard. Here it is, the light in the dark. <laughs> Dizzying highs and the terrifying lows. It's all here today on the edgy salon. <laughs> but so tell me about what is a, something that you've got coming up that you're excited about? I am so excited about the National Student Voice Forum. So that uh, was, was part of the Education Minister's Meeting minutes that came out in December. I've been working with the New South Wales Doves and uh, a student who actually put that submission forward that there should be a national kind of convening of a ministerial advisory group of students. She's fantastic. She did that of her own accord. It then was ratified by chief executives and ministers and secretaries across states and territories and they agreed that the first convening would be in 2023 and so we facilitated an online session to to build the mechanisms and the structure as I do and really excited to be involved in in facilitating that and getting that off the ground this year. I'm so excited about that. Fantastic. And my final question is, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? The thought is the kids are all right. They, they want to partner with teachers. They want you to be at your best. So open that door to partner with them on that. But the kids are all right. Well, thank you so much, Summer, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work you do. You are extraordinary. Thank you. Much appreciated. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.